is found in Mark chapter 3. We're beginning to read in verse 7, and we'll be going through verse 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bo- Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. We got to do that over again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in your presence and we hear from your word, we ask that you would gather us around like these early disciples in Jesus' home at his table and that we would learn from him. And so we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. There was a very intricate system set up. There was one lantern to be lit if they were coming by land two to be lit if they were coming by sea. It's become an American colloquialism now, one by land, two by sea. 
It was actually a system designed by Paul Revere. It was for the occasion of April 18, 1775, when Paul Revere got word from the lanterns at the Old North Church in Boston that the British were on the way. And so the lanterns were lit, and Paul Revere began his famous ride. They were fearing that the British were coming to capture their leaders. It was actually Sam Adams and John Hancock. They were somewhere in the Lexington-Concord area, and so Paul Revere rode. He rode to muster the militia and to warn the leaders that they needed to escape. And he cried out things like, the British are coming. He was announcing news. He was declaring it. The British are coming. And the question is, was that good news or was it bad news? It really depends on what side of the, of the situation you were on. We oftentimes forget that about 30% of the American population during the American Revolution was still on the king's side. And so from their perspective, to hear the British are coming, this was something like liberation. They heard it as good news. For some, they heard this as a moment of panic of, oh, everything's going to be stolen and taken. They're going to come take everything like they already have. And then some people heard it as, oh, this is the moment where we stand against the evil tyrant and we throw him out. But friends, this announcement of Paul Revere, the British are coming, it completely depends how you hear that, how you interpret it, depends on where you sit, where you sat on the issue. And the thing is, when Jesus shows up on the scene, and when we hear his gospel, and how we hear that he has come to reunite heaven and earth, to restore the reign of God to the world, to make all things right, to renew all of the creation, how we hear that message depends on where we sit, what side of the issue that we are on. It can be heard as good news. It can be heard as bad news. It can be heard as threatening news. And Jesus here in Mark chapter 3, after he has announced his gospel, he has begun his preaching ministry, he has a conflict with the Pharisees, he's teaching and he's healing, and we learn in verse 7 that a great crowd began to follow him. He was making a stir. People were coming from all over, from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idiomia, and from beyond the Jordan and around, the, and around Tyre and Sidon. That is to say that this was no longer just a Jewish movement, that now Gentiles were coming from around Tyre and Sidon. Jesus' influence and his reach was expanding. Something explosive was happening. He was healing. He was teaching. And what we find is that we see a foretaste of what Paul says in Philippians 2, that every knee was bowing and every tongue was confessing that he was Lord. The demons were even doing so, and people were coming and falling on their knees and imploring him for healing. The gospel, the announcement of new creation, was intersecting our old broken world, and people began responding to it. What we find in the rest of chapter 3 from verses 13 through 35 are some of these different responses. Because you see, everyone doesn't welcome it with the same applause. While a great crowd followed Jesus, some in that crowd were not for him. Some were enthusiastic and some were not. And this is what Mark takes us through is the different responses to the announcement of the gospel. And so what are these responses? 
There's essentially three that we find in the passage. But the first one is this, is that some are concerned, thinking that Jesus has just gone too far. It's a little bit too much, overbaked, a little bit too radical. Think about his family's response in verses 20 and 21. This is just after Jesus has gathered his disciples. Okay, this is as if Jesus has just organized his revolutionary vanguard that he's going to take with him to the cross. His family sees this, and he sees the, they see the growing momentum in the crowds. They had seen him working miracles. And then in verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again. So they're outside of his house, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And this is the scene that they had seen this one who had grown up in their home, who they knew there was something mysterious about, but now he was organizing what looked like a revolution, and he had leaders, and he had a huge crowd following him, and they knew that this would bring nothing good, and they weren't understanding where he was heading. And so they themselves say he is out of his mind. This is a little too radical. It's too much. And so his family began to put pressure on him that he would cease and he would desist. They're trying to pull him out of the crowds, pull him away from his calling. Flannery O'Connor tells a wonderful story. It's my favorite short story of hers. It's called Greenleaf. There's two main female characters. The first is Mrs. May, and the second is, is Mrs. Greenleaf. Mrs. Greenleaf is a poor, impoverished woman but she has religious devotion, and she oftentimes prays uh, on the property that the Greenleafs rent from Mrs. May. One day, Mrs. May finds Mrs. Greenleaf praying, and Mrs. Greenleaf is rocking back and forth, saying the name Jesus, and she's covered in mud and dirt. She's a hot mess. And Mrs. Green, Mrs. May then responds. O'Connor says, Mrs. May winced. She thought the word Jesus should be kept inside the church building, she was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, even though she didn't believe any of it was true. <laughs> and in O'Connor's dry way, she was making commentary, particularly about Southern religion that surrounded her in 1930 and 1940. And it's the same disease that can always accompany religious people, that we can be polite and we can be nice. And when something seems to go a little too radical and pushes a little too far, we're going to say, no, that's a little extreme, and he's out of his mind. That when it goes past just being uh, about behavior, and it goes past being nice, and when it gets a little too revolutionary, that it might turn the world upside down and actually change something, people tend to get a little hesitant. And this is the opposition Jesus was facing from his family as they grappled with, as they were struggling with his vocation and calling, that he wasn't just going to be a polite miracle worker around the sea, that now there was this mass following him, that he was coming to change the world, and that they understood there was a destiny that was going to happen with the religious authorities and with the Romans, that there was no other way for this to go. And so they just found it too much. And friends, we can never tame Jesus in that way. We can never say when it's too much to say that he's out of his mind or he's asking too much of me. 
Because what he is promising in the cosmic scope of everything that's been laid out for us, that through death and resurrection, Jesus is going to renew all of the creation and offer to us the forgiveness of our sins and the the chance to join this great movement of God and to join the world to come, that there's never too much. It never gets too radical. You can never be out of your mind when you're connected to that. But this is the first response, is that we get a little concerned thinking it's gone too far. The second response that we see is that some others are threatened, and they receive this message as a critique. Now, this was a peculiar response of the religious establishment. In verse 22, you see, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. They could not deny that Jesus was doing powerful things, but they attributed his power to dark forces itself. And so Jesus has to respond, and he very cleverly does so. Abraham Lincoln, notwithstanding, his, um, he uses this in an interesting way. But Jesus says Satan can't cast out Satan. He wouldn't be a divided kingdom. That makes no sense. That if Satan is being cast out, it means that one stronger than he has come and bound him and is now plundering his house. And if you remember at, uh, at the baptisms, John the Baptist says that one stronger than I is coming. And Jesus picks up on that. He is the strong man. And he comes to bind Satan and all of his evil dominion and all of his deleterious effects on human beings and all that sin and evil has wrought in our world. He's coming to undo it. And the Pharisees found this all extremely threatening. Why? Because Jesus was overturning every social custom they understood. He was eating with the wrong people. He was relating to the Sabbath in the wrong way. And he was sitting loose to the temple. That was where the forgiveness of sins was supposed to be dispensed, and Jesus was dispensing it on the spot. They struggled with him. They couldn't understand him. They couldn't get their hands around the fact that he was David's son. He was the promised king, and yet he was the presence of God in their midst as well. It was bewildering. And if it were true, it had severe implications for them. It had severe implications for their power. It had severe implications for their control. And friends, this is a very natural way for us to respond to the gospel because it is a royal announcement. It's not just an announcement that gives you a private insurance plan so that you can go to heaven when you die. If that is all the gospel is, then my counsel to you is to go do something else. Because the gospel is far more. It's far bigger. It's far more engaging. It's far more compelling than that. That it's a story about creation and creation's resurrection and redemption. And that our participation in that and how Jesus comes to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to God and be part of that great resurrection day where everything is renewed and we participate in God's kingdom and program and all that He's doing to renew the world. Now, that's what He offers to us. A great, huge promise. And of course it's threatening. It overturns all of life. Jesus is pointing to the fact when he's disowned by his mother and his brothers here. 
that this too could happen, that it is upsetting, that it is radical, that it is revolutionary in many ways. And he goes on to show how upside down his kingdom is and how his values really are not of this world, that the greatest is the least, that the servant is the one who is the sovereign. He presses every category we have, and of course that leads to conflict around us. Of course it undoes things, and sometimes even the most intimate relationships in life. But he says everything that he has, everything that he has to offer, is more for you than anything the world has. And so you can't be too radical, and there's no reason to be threatened by him. But he is going to demand everything. Everything must be overturned by him. In Uganda, there's a special day of celebration. It's the celebration of the Christian martyrs. In 1875, one of the Ugandan kings, he was the king of Buganda, as it was known at that point, he invited British missionaries to come and preach the gospel. And the way that it worked then is the missionaries would come to the royal court of the king of Buganda and begin to preach. After 10 years, the king who made the invitations was gone, and a man named Mwanga II was on the throne. And several of the court's highest officials had been thoroughly Christianized at this point. There was a bishop coming from England to oversee the growth and expansion of the church. And so what we understand is that both Catholic and Protestant missionaries had had great success in that 10-year window. And Mwanga II understood what was on the line, though. He listened to the Christian missionaries. He listened to his court officials who had converted and he knew that this was going to overturn everything about his royal court and about how power worked, and it was going to turn over his society and cause reform if these Christian beliefs began to spread. And so in 1885 through 1887, Mwanga II began a persecution campaign where he publicly executed many of these royal officials who were Christians. He burned them alive, he ran them through with stakes, he killed missionaries, all because he understood the gospel. There was no lack of understanding. He got it, and it was threatening. And friends, this is how some people respond, because the promises are so big, and the demands and what God calls forth from us to give in response to it out of a joyous response because the promises are so cosmically engaging. But some simply hear threat. But finally, some others follow him. They don't think Jesus is out of his mind. They don't find him threatening. But they follow him and they join his cause. And this is one of the things our passage is primarily focused on, is that people that uniquely begin to form around Jesus. This new family that's being organized around Jesus' table and in fellowship with Him. And that's our enormous question for, the, for this morning, is what are the characteristics of His followers? What do His people look like? And there's one sentence that I'll give you, and we'll break it down. But when we look at this passage, what we see is what characterizes them is that we are an eclectic community, bounded together by Jesus as a family, but yet it's for the sake of the world. And so think about all that we read 
We are an eclectic community. Jesus has been gathering the tax collectors and the sinners. These were the people who were hated and disowned by so many inside of Israelite society. He has been associating with lepers. He's been embracing them, touching them, making himself unclean. He's been healing the lame, people who could not be part of Israel. He has been welcoming into his new Israel. And then we find that a great crowd is forming, and even people from around Tyre and Sidon, which were notorious places of idol worship, were now following Jesus. These Gentile dogs, as they would have been known back then. And friends, that's the kind of community that Jesus begins to create. He doesn't pay attention to class. He doesn't pay attention to status. He doesn't pay attention to skin. He doesn't pay attention to tradition and history. He doesn't pay attention to family. What he pays attention to are those who are drawn to him and are living in repentance and in faith, that they are believing the gospel and following Jesus, and around his table communing with him. That that's the culture. That's the community that Jesus comes to create. Several years ago, I was pastoring a young guy, and he was beginning, he was on the verge of being married. And he came to me, and he was expressing doubts. And I'd had a few grooms go cold at the last minute, Never seen any of them go through on it, and he was sounding like he was going cold. And so I asked him, well, what's this about? And I was assuming he was just being nitpicky on his, uh, on his spouse-to-be, and it wasn't that. He said, no, I'm afraid she's going to find out who I really am. You know my past. You've walked with me through it. I'm afraid she's going to find that out. And so it was a wonderful moment just to ask him, what part of forgiveness didn't you get? because we had walked together for many years. What, what part of the story didn't you put together? <laughs> and he starts laughing at himself because he knows it's true. And that Jesus is creating a community of people with all kinds of sordid past and all kinds of weird stories and all kinds of political beliefs from the tax collector all the way to the Jewish zealot. Okay? And he's gathering them into one place to sit around one table. And that includes us getting over our past failures, our shames that we carry, and it also means that we can't hold those against other people who come in when they come with their shame and failure. It's the unique kind of place. So it's an eclectic community. Second thing that we saw is an eclectic community, and it's bound together by Jesus. What we find is that that crowd in verse 31 that they were around Jesus' table. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. This is the nature of Christian community, that what binds us together is not our class, it's not our shared history, it's not our race. It is Jesus in the middle of the fellowship that binds everyone together. It gives us an equal standing that we have the forgiveness of sins and that God has given us the label of righteous. That is, we're in the right with God and with one another. And so this is the story. We're not individuals, but a community, and we're committed to God's purposes. Look what Jesus says when he redefines his family. He says, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, whoever does the will of God. 
That is just the one who is committed to God's purposes in renewing the creation. And that includes repenting and believing and then walking and following a Jesus. This is what it means to be this new family, is to be united in Christ and in Christ alone. And as religious people, we tend to want to put up other barriers, though. We seem fond of them. Sometimes people erect barriers around ministry strategies. Sometimes they erect them around certain kinds of behaviors. Sometimes they erect them around certain beliefs. But friends, the thing that is to hold a community together is to be Jesus and Jesus alone. It's a theologian named Paul Avis, and he's written a helpful book. It's called The Church and the Theology of the Reformers. And what he does is he analyzes the history of the first generation of the Reformers, those Protestant Reformers who broke away from the Catholic Church in the 16th century. So it's the 1500s. And what is most noticeable, uh, notable about his work is that he says the Reformers were very concerned about the center of their fellowship with one another. Okay, because you had German, you had Dutch, you had English, you had Scottish, you had very many different nations, and they had things in the Reformation that they disagreed on. Okay, you had different church polities, you had different forms of worship, you had multiple different things. And Avis is pointing out that the Reformers were not so much concerned about the circumference as they were about the center. And friends, that's the great challenge for us in church, is to be focused on the center, what binds us together, that we can still hold our distinctives and that we have those, but that the goal is to be capital G gospel or capital J Jesus and lowercase p Presbyterian. And sometimes people ask me about my own speckled denominational history, and it's simply because of this, that I've been able to oscillate between two Presbyterian denominations and an Anglican one, okay? (laughs) I know it's confusing. It is to me as well. But the point is, is that in the first generation of reformers, that they had that eclectic vision, and they knew that being centered upon Jesus, that there was tons of overlap, and there was tons of unity, and there were many ways to share in the gospel ministry. And friends, that was what most characterized our outward face, why we hold distinctives, and we say there are unique things that we don't, we don't fail to talk about the circumference, but we also don't mainly identify ourselves by the circumference, that the chief identifier is our fellowship with Jesus being gathered around his table. As Mark says in verse 14, that we might be with him. He's saying it about the apostles, but it's true of us as well, that we might be with him. The third thing, so we're bound together by Jesus in this eclectic community, and we're bound together as a family. Jesus does radically redefine family. And for the Christian, water always runs thicker than blood. That's hard for many of us to believe, that the waters of baptism that bind you into the Christian family runs thicker than the blood that unites you to your own biological one. That's what Jesus says here. And he says there's a union that happens because your family may disown you. And Psalm 27 beautifully says, but the Lord will take you in. 
that there is a family that exceeds that physical, biological family. There is one that runs deeper. There is a family that you'll be united to in all eternity in God's new world. And it's the family committed to Jesus and to His work in the world. As a young pastor in Memphis, I was assigned to what was called the Fellows Program. And so I would teach this group of young professionals um, who were there every week. They were working jobs, and they would come in for theology, and I was one of the assistant teachers. I was assigned the Bible class. And, uh, but because I had that assignment, I also shared in some of the administrative responsibilities. And one of the young guys who was participating in the first year of the program was breaking the rules. He had been asked to stop. He continued to break the rules, and they were rather flagrant violations. They had offended some uh, some other people who were his host in the home. It was a complete mess. And so we had to sit down with he and his parents. The main issue was is that I was 28 years old, and his father was one of the more influential businessmen in the city, and uh, he was also an elder at the church. And we were sitting down in the conversation to tell him that he was going to be removed from the program. Uh, that news was not met with great applause and delight. And, uh, and we were asked whether we understood what we were doing, whether we knew who we were messing with, and uh, whether we thought that was prudent and polite. And I saw in a very visceral way something I had grown up with, that blood often runs thicker than water in the church. But Jesus says just the opposite, that these parents, as loyal as they should be to their son, that they should be more committed to his Christian growth and maturity and they knew what he had, he had done was wrong, that he did have to be removed, that he had broken the contract and the covenant that he had signed on multiple occasions and didn't have intent to keep it. And so they knew it was wrong. But yet when it came down to this final vital moment, they were going to hold on and they were going to defy the church and tell everybody that they were wrong for doing this. And friends, we have to radically think through the priorities here. We have to think through what it means to be bound together as family, what it means to be together in Jesus around His table and to be that new family on earth. So, eclectic community bound together by Jesus as a family. And finally, it's for the sake of the world. That as we talk about the interior operations of the church gathered around this table listening to Jesus, that we don't lose that there is mission and purpose behind this gathering when Jesus calls the apostles, he says, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Never forget that those 12 apostles were symbolic. They stood for the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the descendants of Abraham, and Abraham was blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And Jesus comes and intentionally calls 12 disciples because they were the foundation, they were the cornerstone, as Paul explains in Ephesians 2, who the church would be built on, the church that was being sent to all the nations. God continuing that great work that he had begun in Abraham, now perfecting it, and the disciples being this new family, called around Jesus, pulled into his presence, and sent out into the world. That this unique family, eclectic, bound together in Jesus, has missional purpose that it is to serve the world, even while we serve one another and love one another, that we never lose that outward face. Because, friends, this is the authentic response to Jesus. 
It is to create a Christ-shaped and Christ-centered community that focuses upon Him, that shares true friendship and fellowship together, and then shares in the same camaraderie of going out to the world. That's the response to Jesus we want to see as He enters our presence and announces all of these great things about the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of all things, the healing of the lame and the blind, everything that is to come in the world. And our response now is to live together in peace, to gather around His Word, to learn from Him, and be sent out as His representatives into the world. We don't have to be threatened by Him, and we definitely should not simply think He's out of His mind. If the gospel is true, it's worth everything. And Jesus asks you to join that family.